0: Welcome to Robot Friends, the podcast that respects the KGB. Episode 42, Eigenrobot versus Anton. I'm over is good. Um have a have a good night last night or
1: Yeah, it was pretty fun. I mean, like San Francisco is starting to feel a lot more alive again. Um, it remains the center of the universe, but that center is sort of starting to unfold a little bit more. And and last night was a bit like that. So, yeah.
0: Nice. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Are you tech just like everyone else?
1: Uh, I mean, you know, I I don't know about just like everyone else. Um, I do work for a technology company, but I guess. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't know what that means. I feel like people say tech as if it's this homogenous thing, but I'm not really convinced because there's a spectrum from your sort of Bugman, Hive Dweller, all the way through to you know really creative people who are mainly in tech because it's a good way to make a lot of money without really doing a whole lot of work. Um so yeah, yeah, in in that sense, you know, tech.
0: Yeah, the the bug men don't feel real to me as as tech in some ways. I mean like they're there and they're around, but um it doesn't feel like active engagement in the same way that like, you know, Rune's a technology brother, for example. And I think his, his engagement with the industry, I mean, maybe it's the way that you engage with it, like engaging with it as, as a job or like as as some kind of entire lifestyle or as an industry that you can shape. I'm not quite sure what I'm getting at, but it feels like there are different mindsets that people take to it. So yeah, in that sense, I guess I'm agreeing with you.
1: I, I think, no, I think I understand. I mean, I think we're trying to make the same point. It's just difficult to, to do that right off the bat. Um, I just think, you know, In my experience, and again, like reading history and stuff like that, people tend to try to compress down things that they don't belong to into monoliths while they try to like expand the things that they do belong to and these into these giant fractally multifaceted things, right? So, you know, you kind of, you describe like, oh, you're a techie in San Francisco. And obviously that calls up some sort of image to people. But the reality is, you know, it's like, well, what does that actually mean? I don't know. Like last night, for example, I met a guy. Um. He like, he professionally makes lasers and he just, just pulled out a bunch of these really cool laser light things that he just happened to have with him and threw up these patterns on the wall while we were all hanging out. And it was like super, super cool. And that guy's, you know, that guy's a technologist, but what he was doing with it was not something recognizable by, like through that image that that you call up when you say in San Francisco, right?
0: Yeah. That almost feels to me like something that somebody would have done 15 years ago you know, like actually going and building something and like taking it to parties and saying, yeah, I make stuff. Whereas today that that doesn't quite feel like the same vibe that you get at a lot of places.
1: I think, I also think that like the culture has shifted, right? And it's kind of embarrassing to show people things you made for some reason. Like it's just, it's not not a normal thing to do at a party. I don't know if it ever really was. Um, Actually, you know what? No, that's definitely not true because there's like the classic boomer image of the dads getting together at the barbecue to like stand around drinking beer in the garage and talk about engines. Right. Uh-huh. And like, okay. And that's like a normal accepted part of culture. But today if you're like, Hey, I made this cool laser. It's not, it somehow doesn't catch in the same way. Um, you know, I, I have ideas about why that might be, but you know, that's just something I literally just noticed just now. Yeah, it's it's
0: like maybe maybe it's like identification with a company or with a lifestyle versus identification with making things
1: that that feels important. I don't think I've ever really met anybody uh, in San Francisco or anywhere else, like in the quote unquote industry, who really strongly identifies with the company they work for, unless they're the founder. That's that's like pretty much like people people here have a job um, and they use that job to do things. It's like that's actually that's actually another interesting thing right um, and this is something I think about a lot back in like 2008 if you worked at Google it kind of meant something about the type of person you were somehow yeah. right like it was a very strong culture and it was a like being googly and being a Googler was like a very strong cultural moment which I think was underappreciated at the time um, and now that's been kind of subsumed because you know companies get big you hire hundreds of thousands of people and then the culture dilutes necessarily and then you know, you have this weird effect where it's like, oh, bring your whole self to work, but, or not like that. Um, And so, you know, that stuff goes away, but I think there was like a cultural moment there where people could probably identify with the places they worked. And then that got, like people realized, oh, that's a very effective hiring tool. Let's all act like that. And then it all kind of just went away. It's, what is it, Gresham's law? The thing where like, as soon as something actually becomes good, it's actually cheaper to produce the image of that thing than the thing itself like that that has some sort of name yeah yeah um i think it's it's probably adjacent to
0: gresham's law where which is the the whole bad money drives out good yeah that's the one yeah yeah i mean i think if if there is some way in which you can make a good facsimile of something Yep. And and maybe even like mandate that it's real or, or if people have a hard time telling a difference. Yeah, yeah you, you just get a bunch of lemons. Obviously. Yeah, exactly. Market for lemons, huh. stuff like
1: that. And I think that really happened with culture um, around technology companies. Like oh, a long time ago, um, like ner- nerds got rich by accident pretty much, right? Like computers computers were this thing, they were pretty esoteric. Um, you were either like this old school, hardcore, big iron kind of guy or you're just a tremendous enormous nerd who nobody really respected but you just found these things really neat and you wanted to make your own versions of them and then suddenly like just hacking on stuff became extremely extremely profitable um, and all the nerds got rich do you think there's a parallel there with like
0: uh you know the the way that comics got big if the related or at least at least the timeline was similar
1: Interesting. So I actually don't know much about that, except that they will never ever stop making Marvel movies. Um, so tell me about that parallel. What are you like? What are you alluding to here?
0: Well, okay. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether you grew up in the US.
1: Um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't.
0: Okay. Okay. So I mean, like there was. I mean, like fandom used to be. Um, it used to be something more real. Like, you know, people who go to conventions and people who play D&D
1: and stuff. You need more commitment, you mean, instead of a passive consumption type of deal? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, like, it was was kind of a lifestyle. And it was really definitely segmented away from the rest of society in some ways. Right. And now it's, I mean, like, they finally admit, I I mean, you know, okay, so like in the 80s, there was mass produced, like, D&D stuff. But it was still, it wasn't cool. No. And... And you know, then that faded out in the nineties and you were back to being Dweeb. And then, then something happened in maybe the aughts, maybe the late nineties. It's not really clear to me, but like I guess once they started making Marvel movies, it was like, oh shit, this this is actually getting big and lots of people are getting yeah. into this. And and there was a kind of a dilution of, you know, what it used to be. And so now fucking
1: yeah. casuals, man. Yeah. Fucking <laughs> fucking mops, you know? Um, yeah. As much as as I, like, really dislike all of those, like, attempts to explain the world purely through narrative that people like Venkatesh and a few other people, like, write very much in that style, right? Like, they try to explain the world purely in terms of narrative and, like, vibes. It's hard to, it's very hard to reject that framework on the basis of, well, I just kind of made this up and it seems to reflect reality um <laughs> you know, like yeah, yeah. sure did but on the other hand it does seem pretty explanatory so it's hard to say i um wh- while i'm on here i i want to shout out my friend ian who has an amazing theory on shakespeare as related to the marvel movies
0: oh shit yeah do it yeah. Uh, i mean like honestly i shill if you want to spend the next two hours shilling just do it i'm completely uh, fine th- with that.
1: this this is yeah i mean the, the, like he doesn't have a very large internet presence or anything. um, And I think he would just prefer not to, but I'm going to shout him out anyway. Um, So his theory is like Shakespeare is basically the Marvel movies of, of its day. Right. And the only reason it's really stuck around is because of that, like mass popularity. Like what his theory is, it's not actually good. It's just like, it was, it's like the Marvel movie equivalent of Shakespeare's time. Right, And people yeah. kept, kept coming to Shakespeare's plays because like, oh, it's a Shakespeare, right? You, you know what I mean? Like, uh, oh, it's similar to, oh, it's a Star Wars movie. So people would just go see it because it's Star Wars. Um, yeah. And now we study it as if it's like really high art. And again, that's one of those narrative things where it's like, sure, you kind of just made that up. But on the other hand, it, it, like it seems like a powerful explanation. So I don't really know where to put it in my brain. Yeah. Um,
0: Yeah. Okay. I will, I will actually defend Shakespeare as being like good in terms of art, but I see where he's coming from. I think almost honestly, I would go and like say that a lot of the traditional mythoses are more like that. You right. know, I'm mean, like, you know, the all, all the Greek myths, like the the Arthurian cycle. I mean, all that shit was like guys coming back to these same stories and these same characters yep. and mixing it up and like rewriting them and like yep. adding little side narratives and like, yep. you know, writing slash fic and shit. Yeah, and, um, right.
1: Fandom, so, fandom is eternal, right? Like, I think it's really interesting how many of – Especially the early comics people, the writers in particular, had like this actually pretty deep, like mythology, literature background. Like these were not, these were actually pretty educated people that kicked off a lot of these stories, um, which I've always found fascinating.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, like it did seem like at a certain point, I I mean, you know, at the same time, it's like a serial that's being written for kids. Yeah. Of course. Of course. And so, like, I think there's this. And, and I say this as somebody who, I mean, spent a lot of time reading comics when I was younger. Not like, I wasn't like a real fan, but I also kind of wanted to be.
1: Yeah, I um, wanted to, I wanted to be a comics fan and I just never could get it. I had friends who were like big into comics and I, I was like, I really wanted to be a fan. It's actually, for me, it's the same thing with anime. For the longest fucking time, I wanted to be an anime fan, which is, that may be the saddest thing I've ever said about myself. No, no, that's real. But it's like, it just never ever grasped, it just never grabbed me enough and like you know i'll enjoy it but i'm i'm not out here seeking it out right and it's also kind of weird seeing it penetrate the mainstream culture more and more um yeah like you know neon genesis is just on netflix right now um which is which is kind of weird and odd and they're making they made like a terrible cowboy bebop movie and oh god let's not yeah let's not talk about it. Anyway. see and
0: it is it's a fucking casuals again like the people who made the bebop move, they didn't know what the hell they were doing. Like, or not movie, but series. Um, yeah. But, but you know, as far as like wanting to be a fan, there is this thing where it's like, you know, on one hand, like there's an appreciation of a thing and then there's going totally over the top about it and like actually trying to signal loyalty to it. Yeah. Like uh, the, the aphorism is like, if you like a band, like casually, you're like, yeah, their best album is their best album. But if you're like a hardcore fan, then you're like, yeah, their second worst album is their best album.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's very accurate. It reminds me, uh, you know, tying all of this back to like comics and anime and whatnot. Have you read the Anime Club series from Casey Green?
0: No. Should I? I will.
1: Absolutely. Um, It's probably some of the most like on point writing and humor about just that weird. Like, again, there was like this one short time, right? And this was when I was in college for undergrad, at least, where like media was available, but you also like, you know, people would still like take out an auditorium at lunchtime and like play anime and you'd watch it with like 40 people there and it would be like the anime club on campus. Yeah. Um, so that that whole arc, and it's really fantastic, I really do recommend it, is just, just captures the entire vibe of, of scenes like that so effectively. Um, it's, it's, it's really, it's really very remarkable how on point it is.
0: Yeah. I love, I mean, like the other, the other thing, I mean, like thinking about capturing the Bible, of the scene, that feels very important to me in in some way that I'm not sure I can express, but right. I mean, when I think about that sort of thing, I, I think about the Daikon four video. Um, have you seen
1: that? Uh, Daikon four. Oh no, I um, haven't seen that, but that's like a, it's about an anime convention or something. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah. So there's a there was a convention in Japan and I don't know if it's still going, but in the 80s the the 4th Daikon, they um, mm-hmm. there were a bunch of people who ended up becoming acts, I think. Oh, wow. um, who who made this like 6 or 7 minute intro video for the convention and it was incredible. You know, they weren't being paid. They completely disrespected copyright law. I mean, like the the number of violations of copyright law in, in that you know short are are astounding they they stole the music for it from electric light orchestra and wow you know and and it's this you, you should definitely watch it as soon as you oh, it out! It's, it, it's this um it's this beautiful just you know like um love letter to to the very idea of of being a fan of things and i mean i, I don't know it just felt like a Different time in some ways. I could be making that up. Maybe I'm just old now. I I mean, like I cannot discount the possibility. You know, I'm getting toward forty. Like, so, yeah,
1: uh, yeah. I, you know, definitely starting to feel like I I might be starting to age out of some things. Um. So I totally get that. I I understand the feeling, but I also think that I'm just going to enjoy what I enjoy probably for the rest of my life, and I should just be okay with that. And I don't, you know, necessarily feel that kind of pressure yet. Which is, which is beside the point, right? Because what you were talking about just now was like, maybe I was seeing this through Rose tinted Glasses. And, and what I'm talking about more is like, well, am I going to continue liking this as much in the future? Um, or am I going to be like the, the 50-year-old guy at punk shows, right? But on the other hand, nobody, like, you can just be the 50-year-old guy at punk shows. That's fine.
0: Yeah. But, yeah, well, I mean, for me, it's like, I appreciate it in different ways. You know, right. like, there was this kind of like raw awe that I used to have. Right, You know, taking in certain kinds of art and now I watch it and like a lot of this stuff I still appreciate and I still love, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, a very different set of eyes and like in a very different yeah. way. And there is some nostalgia associated with it, but like,
1: but that's life you know, experience, right? Like life yeah. changes your perception of everything and, and you, you're like, you've got kids now. So that's a whole different thing. You're essentially like a completely different person from who you were. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's I mean,
0: like in a lot of ways, I haven't changed. But it's you know to go back to Shakespeare, like you know, it's a sea change. Like there's this you know continuity of form, but you know a very deep change in the substance and in a way that's hard to articulate.
1: Yeah, I think um, I think you said there are entirely new sets of qualia available. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, highly recommend it to everyone. I mean, like I I, I feel like you know i don't talk about the ways that it's hard on twitter that much there are definitely times where it's it's completely maddening and like i want to put my head through a plaster wall or something mm-hmm. but um overall i think it's net positive and i mean even even just knowing that these things are possible to experience yeah i mean i think you know, there's an extent to which it's like, okay, yeah, I want to go and actually see how much of, you know, these different things in life I can experience. And there's a value in just feeling different things. And in that sense alone, I think, I think it's been worthwhile.
1: Yeah. I I Um, actually strongly agree with that perspective. I think a lot of people are unhappy because they're actually not really, truly aware of the full spectrum of possibility that they have available to them. Um, Yeah. And I think that people like, my, you know, of course, of course, there are exceptions, right? Like if you're in poverty and fucking living in a violent area, or whatever, you don't have that many options. And I, I'm speaking to more like the people who just spend all their days complaining about how difficult it is to be an adult, right? Like that kind of level. Um, and it's like, well, you know, you could make choices to make your life not be like this, but you haven't internalized that they're actually available to them. And again, so th- this is tying back. This is actually a really core theory that I have. Um, going all the way back to what we started about, which was like media and stuff. One of my really core beliefs is people get fiction and reality confused in their heads a lot. And what I mean by, and that kind of goes two ways. So one of the ways it goes is they can perceive events that never happened as if they were real. So that is, for example, World War II movies being equated in people's heads with the actual event of World War II, right? Yeah. You understand what I mean? Like... You know and and the, the extreme version of that is like trying to moralize through fucking Harry Potter or whatever right like, that's the extreme version of it like okay but these are fictional characters you you know they're reflecting morality they're not creating it anyway but there's another version of that the other version of that is things that are real that people perceive as fictional and that that's something that like I, that's a realization I came to um, a while back. That's a whole. That's a whole separate story. But if you, if What's you an example like, of that. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. Okay, right. yeah. To, to, more, to, most people, like Elon Musk is a fictional character. There's no distinction yeah. between Elon Musk and, like, I don't know. Pick, pick any fictional character. Like Tony Stark is the obvious one, right? But, and and you know. By the way, Elon Musk is canonically in the Marvel universe because of Iron Man three.
0: Oh, for Christ. Of course he is. Sure,
1: why not? He's in there. He, like him, he has he exchanges a couple of words with Tony Stark. He's canonically in the Marvel universe, right? So he's like to most people, he is essentially a fictional character, and so they treat him as fictional. And they, and there are kind of degrees to this, right? And I think you can you can like so the, my personal example of this is until I was like 22, 23 years old, I literally didn't understand that it was possible for somebody to go and start a company, for example. Like I literally did not understand, like grasp that idea. I Like my understanding was either businesses have existed for all time because some rich guy once started one or else like you have to work um, for somebody else for the rest of your life. There's no other possibility in between. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of an example of the fictionalization that I mean. And I think that that's really really more prevalent um, because people aren't really aware of it. And also because like media is really, really good at getting into your emotions and, and, Kind of backfilling your experiences, and then because you have so many fictional experiences, it's kind of easy to put things in your head into that same same space.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's something about. Um, have you read uh, buh, 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 the things they carried? I haven't. Um, okay, it's it's good. It's I I've that a Vietnam
2: book? yeah Vietnam
0: right. Vietnam, um, and he he goes into a lot of this talking about you know, what's true, what's fiction, what does fiction even mean? How can fiction be real? Right. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of mad about it because there's an <laughs> essay at one point that I think you pretty much cribbed from somebody else, but the book itself is good. And I mean, I think the reflection on what is true actually is, is worth running yourself through. Yeah. And I mean, like, I think there's this kind of like myth making where, you know, like, most people are never going to meet Elon Musk, even right. if you do meet him. Like there's, there's gotta be some kind of a reality distortion field where like you don't really get to know him as a person. Right. But I mean, I think there's also this sense in which his legend is also real. Yeah. It's true. Like there's, there's kind of a reality about it. Even if, even if the reality itself is distance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, you almost got to, got to interact with that. Yeah. Um, it's tricky, yeah. I, I think I might be more like uh, like Venkatesh. What's what's your main critique of Venkatesh? You were kind of alluding to that earlier, and I really want to hear it.
1: Like I don't know. So I'm you know I'm a very materialist kind of person. I think that you know things exist, um, and we can you know observe and understand them, um, and we should be trying to explain them. But I, and it's not necessarily a critique of Venkatesh. It's more like he tells very effective stories, um, but it's there are stories that are like difficult to they're difficult to test they're difficult to sort of trace as well like where where did this idea come from why is it this and not something else like this is probably it's one of my most probably most effective mental tools but it's also the one that fucks me up the most is why is it like this and not some other way yeah so van katesh's writing is often like well he's saying it's like this but why is it like this and not some other way? Is not answered. And for me, like my brain, my brain doesn't let that slide. It doesn't let that just go and and just be okay with the narrative. I have to yeah. be like, well, why isn't like what why isn't it structured some other way? Why do we have mobs geeks and sociopaths, right? And he's like, okay, well, you know, here's the evolution, here's this great narrative. But it's again, and in, and in, in my life experience, and especially from reading history and 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 you know, experiencing history and stuff like that. There's never a nice, neat narrative like that to explain fucking anything. And that's what makes me very wary of it. Anytime that there's a neat narrative that explains anything, I'm extremely paranoid. I'm like, someone's either trying to sell me something or they're trying to cover something up. And and my brain has that paranoia built in. And I think Venkatesh really triggers it pretty hard. Yeah, I respect that. I'm trying to think like... I think...
0: I think there's like, okay, you can treat narratives as not necessarily being true. Right. In in whatever sense. But it's also true that lots of people take narratives in and act as if they're real.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. I mean we were just talking about that, right? Like it's exactly yeah. the same thing.
0: Yeah, and I think I think where I'm going with this specifically is like even even if you don't take these things as true. It's important to like, at least become familiar with them and like maybe Mm -hmm. even get, develop a facility with these kinds of narratives Mm -hmm. and like even making them up on the fly, for example, um, just, just so that you understand like how people can buy into narratives and how those narratives work on people. Yeah. I mean, like it it almost feels like the most important thing in the world. Yeah. Um, if if you want to understand how people are acting and I, I mean, you know, I say this to somebody who came out of like, you know, I came out of natural science originally and like did some right. work in economics where you know there's simultaneously a lot of narrative development, but also testing of of narratives and like trying to justify those narratives and
1: you know I mean we, we th- kinda of have the opposite of extreme of that now, right? Where it's like, you know, no study shows X, where it's like, Well, yeah, but you can fucking pick the data and Spin it however you like to tell almost any narrative, right? Yeah. Even being even being kind of very materialist about that doesn't really get you very far because ultimately it drives it through a, like a human narrative lens. Unless you go off and do something like build and explode a giant atomic bomb, then th- that's a pretty clear material demonstration, right? But yeah. so many things in so many things in ordinary life don't look like that. They don't fit into that shape, right? And th- this is kind of like another thing. And again, tying this back to sort of fiction versus reality. Um, you have these kind of like really great technical achievements that are going on right now. Um, So, you know, again, going back to Musk, um, you have SpaceX, right? SpaceX is a great material, enormous technological achievement, simply fantastic. Uh, Landing a rocket is like a crazy, insane thing. Um, And, but the thing is most people will only ever see that on YouTube. They'll never, they'll never even see it. They'll never see it in real life. And even if they did, it would be like a once off event. It's like, you don't get the feeling that it really exists. And on the other end of the spectrum is like, oh, you know, um, these invisible things that kind of keep our society working in the background that nobody really knows about or thinks about very often, um, but are super important and took like thousands of years of figuring out. And, and, you know, one of the biggest ones there is winter wheat and, and the Bayer process. And there's other stuff like, you know, depending on where you sit on the issue, things like the mRNA vaccines, they're invisible technologies. They're absolutely everywhere, but they, again, might as well be fictional. And we often talk about like the way that we live as if these material things didn't really exist. So like you said, narratives are really important, especially to this like intermediate stuff in between, in between your, you know, we flattened a city with an atomic bomb, go and look versus, yeah, you know, you got to live another day without typhus, you know? Yeah. So It's it's hard. And I think, I think that people really need material demonstrations of the ability for like technology and progress to actually improve their lives. And they need it in a way that's not like, no, you just lived another day. It's more like, no, listen, like your life, you just went through a step change in life. And I think one way to do that as well is, and you know, I've talked about this elsewhere before, but one way to do that is to actually really push hard on the aesthetic lever of a lot of these things and make it really obvious that people live in the future. I think that that's, that's, we should be spending more time on that than we are right now. We're, we're being far too safe with design and, and, and like packing th- packaging things and like just presenting the world because we've had pretty clear visions of what the future is supposed to look like for, let's say, our era for, you know, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years, right? The, yeah. the version of the futures we had in the 70s doesn't really differ too much to the ones we have today. Not, not really. Like some of the technologies might be a little bit different. Like um, video. Oh, that's interesting. Video phones, for example, like, okay, well, they've become a normal part of our background, but, you know, interstellar colonies, you know, skies above cities crowded with flying cars, um, giant video wall screens, computers you can interact with with natural language. All of these things are wrapped up in an aesthetic that hasn't really changed all that much um, over the course of that 50 to 70 years. But we also don't, even though a lot of those technologies have actually come about and, and we actually have more and, and better things than people even imagined back then we don't package them as if they're from the future and i think we ought to be spending time on on doing that um be like yeah n- no check it out this is you know the thing you thought would be cool and futuristic here it is
0: um that's that's interesting i i think the way that today looks is very different than the way that people were imagining it in the 70s
1: absolutely it's like um, like like
0: yeah well okay so like you know you look at like star trek stuff right Right. Or, or even even set aside star trek for now is it very difficult for me to it's not difficult it's easy to put these things aside but like when i look at um at like far future space stuff from you know the 70s or 80s or even 90s even even the aughts actually it it's unrealistic to me because ml is just not represented in, in the way that it should be. I mean, right. like, it, it's not even up to today's levels, you know? But, I mean, and, and there's, there's just a revolution one of the early, early teens. And, you know, now at this point, it's very, very easy to automate things. And, you know, I expect that, you know, in 20 or fifty years, it's gonna be even more so. And, and maybe people well, just don't I, appreciate I, I, I'll, that. I'll it.
1: give a caveat. I'll give here a caveat. I think it's easier to automate things that are conceptual or like um, cognition enabled. I think it's very difficult to automate anything that requires interaction with the physical world. And I think we haven't made progress, real progress on that in, I don't know, 40 years, realistically, ML or not. The, like the physical world is really fucking hard. Computers talking to each other or like people talking to each other through information, pretty easy to automate uh, and getting easier, like you said. Things like just making a robot hand that can pick things up uh, and then put them in the right orientation in the right place is still like incredibly ridiculously hard.
0: Um, okay, so I, I bet, I bet, like if we sat down and um, I was talking about this with, with some friends of mine while we were playing Shadowrun like five years ago, mm-hmm. like I bet over the with with like two years of time we could make a pretty functional um, assassination drone where we get a little bit of facial recognition and we get, you know, a small amount of explosive and yeah, but, I mean, you know, that exists, we get a drone that off the shelf.
1: That's how they got, I mean, the thing is, is the, 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 the canard there is drone, right? But we already have this. That's how they got Soleimani in, in Iraq. They hit him with an assassination drone, which we just call a cruise missile.
0: Yeah, that's true. But I mean, like hey. you're talking about something like go and do facial recognition and like spot somebody in a crowd. But we,
1: but the thing is, no, hang on. But we did do facial recognition, right? That's how we knew where he was. We? You know, okay. Right? It's just it's not. I get I get the desire to have this weapon or system that's like a little pod, and it's all autonomous. Um, and you'll just you know somehow put it out in the world, and maybe it'll perch in an environment somewhere until your target walks past, and then it'll fly at their head and explode. Right. Yeah, that's kind of what you're thinking, but I mean, the reality just, is, sorry, go ahead.
0: I'm, I'm just saying that as an example of like a place where there's interaction with the physical world.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, when I when I say interaction with the physical world, I'm really thinking about um, I'm really thinking about manipulation. So okay. like, that's that's a, fairly, that's a fairly like manipulation light task. Go here and blow up is, uh, uh-huh. sorry, it, it's, it's a very information, informational task. It's not really a manipulative task, right?
2: Yeah. Go
1: here and blow up. Um, so first of all, you're flying around in free space. As long as you have enough battery and like the ambient wind conditions are fine, you, you can just do that. We've been able to do that for a very long time. Um, ever since we figured out pretty much how airplanes worked. I mean, this is the other thing. UAVs have been around a lot longer than people think. Um, UAVs were around in the Korean war. Um, no shit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as like decoy targets and all kinds of things. And they were developed first in World War II, um, for among other things, like to provide pilots with live fire target practice. Mm. Um, and they basically, yeah, just put remote controls in planes. And then they're like, well, we understand control theory now. So we're just going to put the control loop in the plane as well. Um, yeah, UAVs have been around around, around for a long time. Um, but, but what I'm talking about is like manipulation tasks, right? So this this is why this is why like iPhone assembly is still not automated. The like any anytime there's a flexible component in an assembly, which which is still quite a lot of them, right? We we have no way of automating it away. There are no mach- there are no machines that can do it. This is like really? this is why we still employ so many people in China. Anytime there's a flexible component in an assembly, a human being is somehow involved in placing it in there. Like s- snapping snapping and gluing components together is like a very still manual process. Huh. We, we can automate like casting and welding and um, a bunch of a bunch of industrial stuff like that. And in principle, again, and I'm not saying it's impossible to build such a machine. I'm saying that and it's you know it's very possible to build a machine for that specific task, and you get it to run and it'll kind of work most of the time. But to build an industrial machine that's like industrially useful for that application is is not within the realm of of possibility right now. We we don't know how to do it. We can't make a laundry folding robot, frankly, like today. Yeah, that's that's the I, exact I've seen some of them. They, they suck. Uh, say that again.
0: I have seen I've seen like some attempts at that, and they're they are not impressive.
1: They're they're like there is the ability for like a robot to get a basket of laundry and just fold it. Even if laundry is like already in the basket and even all the pieces are like kind of already separated, getting a robot that will just pull pieces out of that washing basket and set them down and fold them correctly and then put them away is complete science fiction. It's totally impossible today. And that's what I mean by, that's what I mean by like manipulation tasks. And I think cognitive tasks will get um, increasingly automated. Sure. Like a lot of cognitive tasks are literally like human beings who are following a process and then other human beings who are checking that that process was followed. Right. And that's yeah. like, that's like law. That's like a lot of bureaucracy. That's like, um, increasingly medicine. Um, all of those things seem automatable, but these like real world manip- manipulation tasks seem really difficult. Um, are you, are you familiar with more of X paradox? No, I, I think about this constantly. Um, this is like one of, one of three big things that I think about pretty much all the time. Moravec's paradox is this thing that came out of robotics in the fifties. And it's named for a guy named Hans Moravec, um, who was in Marvin Minsky's lab, um, back at the start. And what he noticed was like all this stuff that we thought would be hard for computers, like learning to play chess or, you know, figuring out if there's a cat in this picture that, you know, that came later on, those turned out to be really, really easy for computers. But like being able to catch and throw a ball, like to the to the same to the same level, like that a five year old can just arbitrarily do that with any arbitrary ball you give them, or yeah. like even objects that are not balls, totally impossible. Um, or 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 just like insanely hard, right? And and machine learning and, and whatever has made some progress there, and you know it kind of generalizes really well, especially when you go at very large scales. But it's just like if you actually look at the efficiency. Of ML versus like your average toddler. It's it's just not comparable. It's insanely bad. Um and so the paradox, and the paradox has a few interesting implications and solutions and things. Um the one that I kind of think about the most is we've been like the the, the cognitive part of our brain is 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 the most recently evolved part of our brain. Like the prefrontal cortex where all of our thinking actually gets done is the most recent part of our brain to evolve. Yeah. And the rest of it is about us has been about us interacting with the physical world as effectively as possible to like stay alive and not die, um, literally since the dawn of time. So, what that what I think what I think it comes down to is actually humans are really just really really bad at thinking. We're actually true like we're awfully awfully bad at thinking. Um, and you know, more of a, more of X whole solution is like yeah, you know, you need embodied cognition. You need to you know, you need the robot or whatever needs to learn over time instead of being programmed or trained. I don't, I don't really agree with that. I just think that we're really bad at thinking and, and we're like, we're bad enough at thinking that we don't understand how we think um, is, is where I go to on that. And I, you know, I, I really hope that we can get out of that because if we stay bad at thinking forever, we're going to get wrecked as a species.
0: It seems like we're okay. But I'm, I don't know that I entirely buy the like understanding how we think is being a, uh, a good measure of how bad we are at thinking. I think I agree with you that we're bad at thinking, which is we a are. statement, Which, but like, do, can you understand how you throw, a, like, do you understand how you throw a ball? I don't.
1: But that's exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like all these other things we do instinctively without conscious thought. And then there's this whole other class of stuff, which we kind of do. And we assume that because it's hard for us, we're good at it. But I think the reality is, is like, if we were actually good at it, it would be instinctual and it's not. Yeah, no, I, I, it's a long bow to draw. Don't get me wrong, um, but it's one of those like cosmic horror things that that I, I like think about pretty often, and where that ties back as well. Um, have you read uh, Beginning of Infinity by Deutsch? No, uh, you might like it. Um, it's you know it's kind of he, he pretends it's a hard science book, but it's like pop science-y a bit. Um, since you've got a natural science background, you'll like catch that pretty quick, but. Deutsch is like, oh, yeah, you know, computers are universal and, you know, we have everything we need to explain the universe entirely. But it's kind of like, well, not really, not, you know, I've never seen the universe run into the halting problem, for example, right? I've never <laughs> seen a complexity class in real life, you know? Um, and so it's hard for me to accept that computation is a universal model of, of the universe as it exists and, and isn't like an artifact of just our... Like it's as far as our thinking goes right now. Um, it's yeah. Kind of like a, it's like a r- realization of of that whole line of thinking about how bad we are at thinking. So,
0: man. Okay.
1: Sorry, so, that was that was a whole lot. I know.
0: No, no, it's good. It's good though. I mean, like, I I don't necessarily. I don't think I disagree with any of it. Um, I think yeah i mean like the the struggle to be slightly better at thinking but okay but but also i think that sort of implies that there's still alpha left in thinking right yeah like we're really bad at it and if you get even marginally better at thinking there have got to be a lot of returns there yep Yep. whereas you know for like throwing a ball i think we've definitely hit diminishing (laughs) margin long long ago you know what i mean
1: well yeah, yeah yes and no um because like obviously only since we've started to be able to think, have we been able to influence our material environments in like, at massive scale? Because we're able to think about it and we're able to coordinate, right? And that requires, that requires the- coordination. feels really important to me. I think it's, just
0: as an aside, like, I think, you know, so like there's physical action and there's, you know, this kind of autistic like thinking in some sense, but- there's also coordination, which it feels like humans are actually very good at in certain ways, and that's examined
1: At certain levels, right? Level, anyway, where I was going, where I was going with this is like, you know, we we've done all this thinking, and it's gotten us like this tremendous great boons, and and sure, like we don't need to think about throwing balls anymore. But my point is like, if we are to get still more mastery over our environment and and the universe in which we live and like improve things for humans. And, you know, honestly, I think that that's what we should be doing. Um, We're going to have to figure out how to think better. Like we're at some side, we're at some sort of physical limit with what our innate understanding of the material world can give us. We need to like, we need to start bootstrapping our own processes a lot more. And coordination is (laughs) coordination is really one of them. Nobody's really fucking figured it out. Game theory is only like, what 67 years old? Yeah. Like that's how recent we've actually been taking coordination problems seriously. Like literally after the atomic bomb.
0: Okay, but that's how long we've been thinking about coordination right, 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 problems. Right. But I think there's I think there's more an element of coordination problems that are that's maybe more akin to like throwing a ball, right? Like you get a bunch of humans into an area and they certainly are able to figure out a certain amount of coordination in, yep. in kind of a natural and
1: instinctual way. Yep. But, but- and but we have to go beyond instinct right if all we had was instinct we you know we just we would not have the material abundance we have today
0: yeah yeah no i'm, I'm just trying to think about this so like what's i don't know i'm almost thinking about this as like a kind of a central problem where like oh, maybe you, uh so, so like you know in chess where you have like a human and a a human team paired with a,
1: an oh, algorithm
0: yeah. that to make decisions it's so, like what if what if for socialization like you get a bunch of of celebrities working with a group of rationalists <laughs> to like maximize like figuring out coordination. You know what I mean?
1: I think. Like you just, I think you just reinvented the effectual effector, uh, altruist movement, right? Did I?
0: Do they have? Do they have celebrities working with them? Maybe they should. I
1: mean, you know, like certainly there there are EA celebrities, right? So yeah, I need to think about that. <laughs> more. I, yeah, I mean, that, that was like that was more that was more of a jerk than a serious proposal. But yeah, no,
0: well, yeah, I mean, okay, it's so like,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. No,
0: I mean, like, um, but okay, so like, let's let's put altruism aside for a minute because I, I mean, you know, like, I've spent enough time in economics that I'm skeptical of, of of altruism, like per se, in a lot of ways. Sure, um, but like, I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking like organizational econ, like. I don't know. It feels like there's something there. Okay. So so one thing that I'll say about tech is that I think that their methods of organization tend to be a lot better than, than in traditional firms, right? They tend to be more, I mean, I hate to say it, but like agile and.
1: Yeah. um, But you you also have to understand that like rewriting a piece of software is a lot easier than like reshipping new machine tools, like retooling a production line there there are things that you can be agile in that way about. And there are definitely settings where like software processes don't work. And we've seen absolute disasters where people have been like, oh, we're going to just like take this agile thinking out of software land and apply it to the world, to the physical world. And then, oh, well, it turns out that there's a reason that the legacy processes are the way that they are. Right. I, but yeah. I'm with you. I think, I think that like the fact that there was organizational innovation, um, over in, in, in like software land is a very important thing, but we, we should think about it more in terms of its second order consequences than in terms of, oh, let's export this way of doing things everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so And there, there's definitely too much of a good thing as well, right? Like you, ultimately you, you actually need, and this is something that I see all the time as well. Like the example that I always like to say is you can't like, imagine you're on the Apollo project and what you're a PM on the Apollo project today, right? And your your mission is to get to the moon. What metrics dashboard do you display to your team to help them get to the moon? <laughs> right? Oh man, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's not it's not going to be rocket height reach this month. You know, it's you, you sit down and you think through the entire problem end to end, and then you like, okay, well, we have gaps in our knowledge here. Let's do a thing to fill those gaps, and then the next step, and the next step, and the next step. And it's like, well, you can't agile your way to the moon. You have what, to, what do you think?
0: Go ahead, what do you think Musk does? Like, how do you think SpaceX operates?
1: Oh, do you think I, it's
0: more like the Apollo project? Or do you think it's more like
1: I, I don't know, know how much proves. I should talk about this? Oh,
0: uh, wait, I, wait, okay, fair enough.
1: Like, no, no, look, I, like, I, I, I do have internal insight, um, and I also really don't want to piss people off, and I happen to know that your podcast is like very widely listened to. Is it? Um, oh no. So let me, uh, let me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to think. So, I think. So I I think Musk's role in his companies is like applying the right amount and type of pressure and lining up very smart people behind a vision and then like poking them in their brains in ways that make them work very effectively. That's, that's, That's my instinct on that. And I think that like... You know, and honestly, again, I think to work for a Musk company, you have to be a very mission driven person. Um, There's, there's frankly easier ways to, to make money and also easier places to work in, in say aerospace and or automotive places than Tesla or SpaceX. Um, And I think what he's really good at is like grabbing all those mission driven people, making them like want to work really, really, really hard. Um, by the way, oh, uh, here, here's, I and mean, you know we're talking about Musk a lot, but I, I think it's just interesting. Um, have you read the wizard of Menlo Park about Thomas Edison? No. Sure. My entire operating theory or one of my operating theories on this is that Illinois. Was Musk he in Menlo Park? Guessing... I... Sorry, go ahead. Edison was in Menlo Park? Different Menlo Park. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Different Menlo Park. Not, not, not Zuckerberg Menlo Park. Um. So in this book, it like talks about Edison um, and his relationship, especially with the media and like society, American society at large, because he, he was essentially like Musk of his time, basically. Yeah. He was like this, you know, genius lone inventor who's bringing forth the future and creating amazing devices and all these things, although he was a much more populist kind of kind of guy. Um, although, you know, Tesla's Tesla's hewing to that. And and that guy was also really great buddies with Henry Ford. Um, mm-hmm uh he was actually uh, f- i think ford was his employee at one point um at edison oh, electric shit. um and then yeah ford went off to anyway uh, another digression digression on digression i swear we'll loop back in a minute all of the original cars were electric by the way um and henry ford's innovation was figuring out that the combustion engine was the way to go uh uh-huh. so yeah literally- was it
0: was that it i thought it was uh, i thought it was all process oriented i mean like not to not to come back to
1: yeah no no so the assembly the assembly line um, made it possible to manufacture this stuff like economically. Yeah, but Ford was like, "No, ICE. This is like the way to build a mass like a mass consumption car. This electric stuff is not going to fly for like it's not going to work unless you're rich." Anyway, um, unwinding. What I was saying is is like Musk in many ways seems to be writing the Edison playbook um, in his relationship with the media and like with with people at large. Um, and you know Edison was also very controversial in his time. Um, and now, you know, and he's alternately valorized or or demonized, depending on where you hang out on the internet, as well, or like where you are in your high school education.
0: Um, I'm, I'm going to come out as anti Edison.
1: You're anti Edison? Yeah, I mean, like, look, look.
0: I mean, specific specifically because of what you did to the elephant.
1: Like, yeah, I, I'm so I'm hundred percent against the yeah. elephant thing. I I think that was just disgusting, frankly. But I also think that like at that time, animal cruelty was just a thing that happened. I know. Like you, you read all these old stories and like someone's just drowning a bag of kittens like it's nothing. You know what I mean? Like it's just- I know, I know. And I think anyway. it's because like, again, I, I, I think that you can relate that directly to that graph of like percent of employment on farms in the US. And, and how like when those stories were written, something like something ridiculous, like 60% of people worked in farming. So they were they were just like dealing with like sick and dying animals every single day of their lives forever.
0: Um, do you think do you think working maybe maybe effective altruists like new EA area, like make people stop working on farms? Because I mean, you know, I, I read about that stuff and that there's definitely a level of sensitization. Right. Um, or or like desensitization that I think people who routinely work on farms get that I just don't have myself, you know.
1: Oh man, that reminds me of the, that. That's there's another great story there. Uh, I think it was a Steinbeck story where he like exposed conditions for meat packing plant workers in like New York or something. Oh, uh, I don't think that was Steinbeck.
0: It was The Jungle.
1: The Jungle, um, and, it, and it was by somebody else whose name think. Upton remember. Sinclair. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. Upton Sinclair. Sinclair. <laughs> Sorry, not Steinbeck. I, I remember it was an S name. Um, and what's funny was like. Sinclair was trying to like highlight the plight of the workers and the conditions that they were operating under. But what it actually kicked off is like the animal rights movement.
0: Really? I didn't realize it really. (laughs)
1: Like like people learned the wrong lessons from it, right? It wasn't, oh no, there's poor immigrant workers in the meatpacking plants. It was, oh my goodness, we're like slaughtering these cows um, and that's like in the popular consciousness and, and we have to do something. And, you know, so that's literally the start of kind of like the animal rights, uh, animal welfare movement in the U S
0: because of, because of the jungle. Well, there's that. There was also, um, uh, what was that book? Uh, black beauty. Uh, and I don't remember who they made a that. movie
1: of that, right?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, like super famous book, you know, about the life of a of a horse Yeah. and like people were furious about it because it, I mean, it was you know, written from the perspective of this horse and people were horrified that, and, and like angry that somebody would write about an animal having cognition and experiencing pain right. and that sort of thing. And, you know, cause yeah, you know, horse is really widely used in, at the time it was written. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, like, you know, they were very, very common. Right. And again, this, this ties back to our whole thing about fiction and media and how it affects reality and narratives and all these things. And I don't know. I, I think I think I just avoid stuff like that maybe because I'm not good at it. Um if you if you read any of my writing, I think I like I tend to think of my writing as writing like a battleship or an aircraft carrier, like it's going to choose one direction, it's just going to plow ahead. Yeah. And I think Venkatesh is a much more like agile, multi-threaded, can bring a lot of stuff together writer that, that and I just don't write or think that way, and maybe that's another reason why I avoid some of his stuff. Like it's it's my yeah. failing's not his, you know.
0: Yeah. Do you, um, do you identify, I mean, like to the extent anyone is anything like this anymore, like more as a rationalist or a post-rationalist?
1: I don't, yeah. Like, so I came. <laughs> yeah, what's I your came, origin story? Like, why, the, hell, why
0: are you here, dude?
1: <laughs> I came to be a post-rat by accident. Um, Where it's like, so, you know, my story, my story with the post rats and I actually started writing a a history, a a popular history of, of the post rats, um, for, for default friend, Uh, and I still need to make progress on that. I've got too many projects right now. Yeah. I came to be part of like this community on Twitter by accident. And when I arrived in the Bay back in 2018, like those were my, essentially my like ready-made group of friends. And so I like just joined in basically. Um, Yeah. And I actually think you and I, uh, you and I were mutuals even before I came out here um, from being in in the like Sonia sphere. And I entered that in in a very oblique way as well. Um, Look, so here's, here's the thing, right? I think a post-rationalist is somebody who's aware of the sequences, but doesn't live their life by them. Like they're somehow, they're somehow integrated in their thinking, but they're not like, well, I'm not going to actually follow this, but I'm aware and understand it. I think that's what makes a post-rat. Although these days, like there's, I don't know, there's, there's people, there's, there's definitely these new kids, right. Who are like, who are these accounts? Who are these people? Why are, why are they post-rats? Does that mean something different now?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think like, I I think it's changed a lot. And it has, it's a little worrying. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, things just change over time. Right. Like the, you know, the, the group that was really active from like, you know, 2014 to 2016 was different than the group that was like 2016 to 2018, which is different than, and so on and so on and so on. I think
1: 2014 through 16 has much deeper, like rationalist ties um, than the, than the later group and certainly the current group. Right. Yeah. I don't think I don't think the current leading lights in, in what has come to be post rat Twitter um, are really very affiliated with with like you know your friend and mine Udkowski. Uh, <laughs> I've come yeah. I've come to re- refer to him that way, um, and it, it's really sort of an affectionate thing. Um, I used to be I, I, I spent a lot of time like deprogramming myself from instinctually like disliking people. Um, and that's been that's been to my tremendous benefit. Um, yeah, but Yudkowsky was is definitely like one of the ones where I clearly recognized that I had made a psychological breakthrough. When yeah, right. <laughs> when I was when I was able to find him interesting instead of repulsive.
0: Yeah, he's he's a challenging guy to like. I think for me too.
1: Yeah, but that's fine. Like. I don't know. I think, and I think a lot of that, you you know, it's like that fucking how you feel about Kanye is how you feel about yourself. Right. Uh And I think, you know, being much more secure in my own identity and who I am and not really being feeling somehow challenged or needing to, needing to be right against like against that line of thinking made it a lot easier to just find it interesting. And, and that's been of, again, just tremendous benefit because I surround myself now with, with really lots of interesting people who I don't necessarily always agree with. Um,
0: just a better yeah. way of living. It's, I think having negative parasocial relationships is really bad for your soul. Oh yeah. Like, you know, these people don't even know you exist and you, right. you spend a lot of time hating them. I mean, like that, that's corrosive.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think like, this is the other thing I see so many people on like normie Twitter complaining about how bad Twitter is. And then we're kind of over here just having a really good time. (laughs) So it's like, you're you're clearly using it wrong. (laughs) It's a, it's a great time. I think it also helps to live in a place where you can go and meet your mutuals though. Um, which is cool. Like, like even this thing I was at last night, i met three or four more people who I, who I previously knew from Twitter. Um, yeah. Even though I didn't go there for that reason, they just happened to also be there. Um, so making Twitter kind of real life, I think also makes it better.
0: Yeah. I agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, like going back to the, the thing about the evolution of, you know, whatever, whatever this part of Twitter is, I mean, like it is a lot different. And I think the, the extent to which it's, you know, kind of an active and, and I don't know, like, Intellectual or investigative processes maybe died down a little bit I agree but i think I think it is very much still a pretty decent social club, although there are still i mean there are some issues around that too I mean yeah kind it of would
1: be, it would be good to get some of the intellectual exploration aspects of it back, but the thing is is you know, and I've said this to you before was like I remember when you were like a small account when you had maybe like fifteen hundred people following you, and that seemed like a lot to me it seemed like a lot to me and like. Now, now, by necessity, it's performative. Um, yeah. And, you know, like, I simply don't think of myself as a popular person, so I never feel the, the urge to do that. Um, but I definitely understand why, like, it's turned into the post-rat reality show instead of... <laughs> like, no, I mean, like, look, literally, like, it's it's what... It's, you, you see all this, and, and somebody pointed this out, I think, like, Steph or someone pointed it out, where she was like, a lot of the, like, main accounts now are posting in this really confessional talking to the camera in the confessional booth way. Right. Uh That's like the trend right now. Um, And it's kind of like celebrity theater more than it is about like having really interesting discussions with, with people and sometimes getting into like arguments, but fun ones with them. Yeah. Um, Which is fine. And you know, like you said, things change and evolve and we have a de facto social scene now. Like I'm, I'm pretty comfortable meeting anyone in, in that sphere without ever having met them before at this point yeah. as well like i have no nerves about it like i may i may have before i didn't go to vibe camp um i don't regret not going to vibe camp i'm really glad that it went very well um and uh, you know if if they do it again i might go to the next one but like yeah, I think I think the fact that you can just do an event like that, and you know, four hundred people or however however many it was, sh- can just show up, and it's like a legitimately good time for almost everybody there, um, barring some of the incidents that I heard about, which you're going to get with any group of hundreds of people. Yeah, um, that that kind of speaks to that. But you know, again, nobody nobody was really getting into really serious arguments at cap Well, you know, I, I heard that there was some physical altercations, but you know,
0: oh, I see. I didn't even hear about that. There. Uh... I know somebody was mad at Ayla's um, in-person Twitter poll, which yeah, that's,
1: that's what I heard. Um, yeah, I mean,
0: yeah, which I mean, maybe maybe that too speaks to I mean, you know, the the way that things have gotten. I mean, they're, they're I think there used to be a very high decoupling sort of yeah. vibe around it. Maybe that's lessened a little bit, or or maybe just a lot of people who have come just are not familiar with.
1: I think the yeah. hard part of that, though, as well is, you know, on the one hand, yeah, like high decoupling is great for intellectual discussion, but, you know, people are also not wrong when they say that people use the excuse of high decoupling to act like assholes. Oh, cool. mm-hmm. for sure. Yep. Like, they're not wrong about that, right? Like, you actually can be a full blown out racist and pretend that you're just high decoupling, right? Like, that's a thing you can do. And that's the price that that's the price that we pay. It's kind of like how if you're gonna have like if you're gonna have breakthrough inventions in some field, you have to just deal with the fact that you're gonna have a thousand dead ends before you get there. You just have to accept that as a cost. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and it's I mean, like I think there's something about in-person that makes it different. And I mean
0: I also think that there's an element of of just size that makes it very hard. You know, like you get to, you get to something that involves hundreds of people. And I mean, it's just very hard for people to be judicious or to have, you know, a certain amount of flexibility in the way that they apply norms or standards. Like, yeah. you know, in a group of 16 people, like don't be a dick is. I it's mean, a really pretty, easy to
1: understand thing, right?
0: Yeah. 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 Whereas like with that many people, it's like, you know, you're you're going to get people I mean, there's going to be a, maybe just a greater dispersal. Um, in terms of tolerances
1: and preferences.
0: yeah, And I mean, also, you're, you're just inevitably going to get people who are more, you know, pricks. So yeah,
1: exactly. I, like the larger the group of people, the likelier the odds are that like someone's a fucking asshole. And of course, like, you know, you'll get you get you'll get higher odds if you're at a neo Nazi rally. But even in like just any group of public in public on average, you're going to get a couple of assholes. Right. There's nothing you can do about it. It's just just how things are. You know, you can design for it as well. Right. Like you can, that's, that's essentially what religions and cults are almost where you're, you're trying to select for what your norms are and enforce them in very strict ways. And like, even, but even that gets diluted, right. That's how you get, you know, the Protestant reformation.
0: Yeah. And and even there, I mean, like if you're enforcing norms in strict ways, like I think you inevitably end up becoming boring, you know, like, like, I mean, a lot of what's interesting is like kind of testing norms and trying new norms out and like seeing ways in which they can be pushed in one direction or another. And so suddenly, like, if they have to become more codified and rigid, it's like, mm, you yeah. know, maybe, maybe that's just ossification socially.
1: Yeah. And a, a lot of things turn into kabuki over time as well, right? Again, because like we said earlier, the, it's easier to like produce the image than it is the substance almost. Mm. Does it, actually, this is another thing that I always think about. Why the fuck is it so hard to like, Make and do good things. Isn't that <laughs> weird? No, no, but yeah, isn't that weird? Isn't it weird that reality bends to everything being difficult? I mean, why is entropy, that That's really strange to me?
0: I mean, it, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, just like you look at the number of like ways of ordering atoms, right, or anything else. I mean, and most I, of it's yeah. garbage. Yeah, it, most of it is just like total useless, and so like. You know, you have to, to reach some like very careful cal- careful calibration to get to something good or desirable, well, or even
1: nice. usable, right? Like, yeah, even even just the most basic shit is insanely hard. But then, and again, like I'm literally streaming a consciousness right now. That go. Back, that ties me back to that idea just a second ago, where it's like, well, maybe in order to have any of the good things, you just have to suffer through ninety percent bad. Like maybe that's that's an actual physical law somehow um but then like why is that the physical law is the almost next question but we're not allowed to think about metaphysics anymore so that's as far as i can get yeah you know
0: honestly i don't i've never actually understood what metaphysics is i've always i've always seen it in the context of philosophy and it's just like well okay so it's something like woo or or like well
1: (sighs) metaphysics metaphysics is is a really interesting historical phenomenon um because basically after after like oh I want to say late 19th, early 20th centuries, it like went away. Um, yeah. And it went away in part because people went like hard on foundations and logic and, and, you know, people like Whitehead and and everyone around them basically like got rid of it. But yeah. what it used to be, what metaphysics used to be was really the search for Um. I mean, we we'd call it a unification theory now, I guess. Yeah. But it was trying to come at a conceptual approach to understanding why things are the way they are. Like what what set of concepts would cause the universe that we live in to arise, right? Like how can I explain it conceptually why things are the way that they are? Um, Okay, sure. And there's a lot of really interesting metaphysics out there. Like... um, Leibniz, who has so much correspondence that some of it is like, actually, probably I think most of it is still untranslated um, or not even like published, um, had this really had like his own unique theory where, and again, this was like rediscovered and written up and people have enormous debates about what he really meant uh, because, you know, we're writing about the guy 300, 400 years after he lived, right? Um where they dug this up, and he has this whole thing where it's like, well, nothing actually like exists materially. What everything is is actually these things called monads, like observing and talking to each other, uh-huh. and that's all that. Th- and that's all that like reality actually consists of. Um, and that's the sort of shit that they used to come up with in metaphysics. I um, Love it. You I actually,
0: res- I respect this. I mean, okay, so metaphysics is dead, which explains. Um, I was—I don't know if you remember this. I was trying to—it's kind of—it's kind of
1: getting resurrected. Um, people have started looking at it again, um, but classical metaphysics is definitely dead and buried.
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm just going to leave that story dangling. And sorry, guys. Um, so, hey, okay, one more thing—I definitely want to hit, and, and it's related to philosophy, um, and and like you know pillars <laughs> of philosophy. So, so you wrote this—you wrote this piece um, that I loved on Lennon being a mushroom. Oh,
1: and, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: like, been fantastic. in my
1: head for so long. And then I realized like, well, Solana is publishing a lot about like media and truth. That This seems like a good venue. Let's just write it. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. No. it was
0: fantastic.
1: Got it of my head finally. Anyway, thank so, you. I'm so, glad that you liked it.
0: Yeah, no, it was great. Everyone should read it if, if they haven't already. Um, but I mean, and, and I'm going to try and, very quickly summarize it like mm-hmm. basically under the soviet union um you know people understood that like they were sort of being lied to via like propaganda and so on and then toward toward the end of the soviet union you know there was there was glasnost and you know people started telling the truth more and and then things started breaking down and like there was a kind of consensus reality that no longer existed that's right and Sort of. And I should let you explain this because I, I think you're. No, you're doing a
1: great job. Um, it's okay. been Interesting to hear other people summarize because then that tells me like what did I actually get across in my writing? Yeah,
0: I, I think I'm missing some of the. I, I'm I'm not recalling all the mechanisms that you mentioned. Those felt important, but anyway, people go read the article. Um, the moral of the story is by by the early '90s when things were really falling apart in the Soviet Union, um, like consensus reality felt incredibly mutable to to people you know, who who are living in, in Moscow or St. Petersburg or wherever. And it, this all kind of culminated with this broadcast of program by somebody somehow, I think on a radio station. It was,
1: right uh, it was it was on TV. Um, okay. And it was like a satirical sort of comedy program. And the guy who did it is like a fairly famous guy in his own right. And this was pretty early in his career. Um, this was like one of his big breakthrough moments, but it was like a, I don't know. I'm trying to. I'm trying to compare something for American audiences. Like, um, you know, imagine like a almost a satire news show, right? But where they just run with the bit like all the way. Like, imagine, imagine the Onion was televised, basically.
0: Yes. Keep um, keep going. I have to stand up and do a thing, but I'm you're gonna... fine.
1: You're fine. So yeah, I'll, I'll finish the I'll finish the summary. Um, like Child rearing is happening in the background. No, my cat.
0: Um. Anyway, I'm good.
1: Oh. <laughs> um yeah so this broadcast went out um where like this guy was satirizing just all these revelations coming out because in the sort of late 80s early 90s people were starting to really get the truth or what you know what they were now being told was the truth about what happened in soviet history so you know all kinds of atrocities were coming out you know what the state of the country really was like versus what they'd been told for the longest time and things like this. And, and it, it got to the point of absurdity, right? Where almost like daily, there was some new revelation in, 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 mass media. And so this guy went on TV on his show and he's like, well, here's a new revelation for you. It turns out that Lenin was a mushroom from space. Um, like clearly meant as a bit. And they, they did it. They did it almost completely deadpan. There are a couple of moments in the show where like, they're like heavily signaling, like this is satire. Like we're making fun, but because of that just constant flood of revelatory information, people just really weren't sure. Like like they honestly had to ask themselves, is this true or not? Just because of that breakdown of consensus reality. And it's not about that people really believe that <coughs> Lenin was a mushroom. It's about the necessity of even asking that question. Cause it's so absurd on its face, right? That's what I was trying to get across in, in what I was writing. When, When you, when you have to like, Ask yourself, even a little bit, about basic truths like that, um, and you're being flooded with with like possible truths from every direction. You're you like you collapse into either believing everything or nothing, and, and neither are good paths.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, like, I yeah, that, that roughly was what I was thinking about it. Except, you know, you explained it much better than I did because.
1: I read the essay once a few weeks ago. <laughs> um, you know, was just giving it's, been, it's been sitting in my head for probably three years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But so, I mean, like I, I think you were writing this, I mean, partly as like, I mean, you can tell me exactly why you're writing it, but I read it partly as like a reminiscence and partly as kind of a warning where, yeah. you know, I mean, it does feel like in the West, there's kind of been a breakdown of, something that used to be something approaching consensus reality and right like, yeah so it's been hitting 20 or 30 years after after the fall of the soviet union but it doesn't feel like an altogether like non-parallel process even if it's been driven by something else
1: yeah yeah and, um yeah I, I, <laughs> sorry go ahead I'll, I'll i'll let you ask and then i'll answer
0: um so so my question was like there, there are two ways that maybe in 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 a philosophical framing that you could understand what's going on, um, and maybe one way is that it's it's a matter of epistemology, right? Like we don't we don't know whether something is true or not. Yep. Because like in in like a physical sense. Yep. Um, you know, so like you know, did did the Russian army, you know, say kill? I I don't mean to pick an inflammatory example. This is no the fine. Thing you're, you're, I saw. you're
1: good. That's all right.
0: Um, so like did did the Russian army you know kill hundreds of civilians in Buka, or you know, like was the did, did people even die in Buka? Like we, yeah, what you know, actually like,
1: happened, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: So like maybe maybe we don't have any idea what happened, but we can all understand, you know what it would mean for right. hundreds of people to be killed in this way or for this to be staged in such a way where yep. we just don't have the ability to really agree, like arrive at some kind of consensus about what actually happened.
1: Yep. Um, I think the other way you can but that's common in war. Um I think war is not necessarily a, a terribly good example because that that's kind of like a constant fact of war. That's why we have the like cliche of fog of war, right? Often yeah. the people who are actually making decisions have no idea exactly what's going on, right? This is, it's like a, it's like a fundamental principle almost, but there are far more, there are far more prosaic things than that, um, that people are being called on to decide on the truth of for themselves, because the people and organizations that they are supposed to rely on for that truth, have been found like wanting to the point where the individual person can see that they're not trustworthy. That's, that's yeah. the kind of stuff that I really mean.
0: Okay. Well, so, so that's one kind of like breakdown of consensus reality, yes. like this epistemological kind. Yes. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking, and I'm, I'm curious whether this also happened in the Soviet Union. Toward yep. the end. I, and I just don't know. Um, it also seems like there's a kind of ontological breakdown where, it's not even a question of like what the, what the epistemology is. Like, um, you know, just, just again, to take it somewhat inflammatory, but I think I, I think I can describe this without actually having a strong position, but like, um, you know, trans people, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, there has been this endless back and forth about, you know, are say, trans women, women, and people are not disagreeing on any, in any kind of epistemological way. Right, yeah. like everyone is like, okay, so like here is a person, and you know they have X Y chromosomes, and they've had such and such surgery, and this is what the hormone levels are like, so and so forth. Um, and instead, it's more, it's more like a disagreement about categories, or yeah,
1: I mean, you know, you could you yeah. Could so say let me, like let, it's me it's actually, somatic, let me actually let me actually let me actually pick a different illustrative example for this. Sure, um, I understand what you're saying. I just think I can illustrate it better. Uh, yeah, a, do it. So earlier in our discussion, right, we talked about how in 2008, it was really clear what it meant to be a Googler, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like really, really clear. That's an ontological, that's ontological clarity, right? And now it's like, well, what does it mean to be a Googler? It doesn't really mean anything except that you work at Google, right? And so on a larger stage, and, you know, there was definitely a, a th- there was, there was a, progression of this that happened in the Soviet Union, and which, which I can talk about at length. Um, yeah, please. It's happening, it's happening in America, where what it meant to be an American, I think, you know, and of course, America always been a very diverse and often divided society. So what it meant to be an American has been different for different groups of people, but at least there existed consensus, at least within some communities about what it meant to be American. Like what it, what it is that you were and did as an American, right? And in the Soviet Union, a lot of this was actually constructed. Um, so when, when, one, thing that, um, one thing that a lot of people don't know about the Soviets was it was explicitly a techno-futurist state for most of its existence until the Brezhnev stagnation. So from the Bolsheviks, who were a futurist movement, and they actually grew out of a very similar futurist route to the fascist movements in Italy and then, you know, obviously later Germany and everywhere else. Um, at their core, their belief was that using technology and scientific progress, we can create a new man and that, you know, that Soviet man is, is like a new man. It's almost a form of transhumanism, right? We're yeah. gonna use, We're going to use technology. We're going to use all of this scientific progress to remake society into a more just place according to our principles of, of you know what justice actually means, right? Um, this was very explicit in the Soviet program for a long time. And, you know, the Second World War um, happened and people, even after the Second World War, they weren't like, oh, you know, we just won this great victory. We've legitimized ourselves as a country. You know, we have a right to exist in the world, blah, 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 blah. We have all these traditions. It was more like, OK, well, now it's time to we survived this. Now it's time to rebuild and build towards the future. Right. And so you have the Khrushchev era and, you know, the Soviets are in space. Um they're doing all these great scientific things. They're putting, you know, nuclear uh, reactors on ships and in submarines and, you know, harnessing the atom. And, uh, you know, everything is accelerating and people are working really hard to, like, build this technological post-scarcity communist future. That was very explicit, right? This is, this, you know, if you, if you talk to my parents or people from my parents' generation, that's what their parents and them early on in their lives were explicitly told they were working towards. That's like the justification for the hardship and, um, and everything else was, yeah, like today it kind of sucks, but tomorrow we're building something for tomorrow, right? Um, and actually, in, in a lot of ways, my generation was supposed to be that new Soviet man. Like that's, that's kind of the inheritance that my generation was supposed to have. But what happened was in like the 70s, um, in the Brezhnev stagnation, which happened for a lot of reasons, um, that narrative changed. So it wasn't, you know, it was no longer about building communism. It was no longer about this, you know, technological transhumanist post-scarcity future. It was more about, well, you know, things are pretty okay. Um, Like we're gonna like valorize the victories in the Second World War, and 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 that's just what our society is gonna be about now, right? We're gonna like kind of just be maintenance mode and have this like, you know, nobody really believes in this future promise anymore, basically. Yeah, um, And that's an ontological shift. It's kind of, you know, from external observers, maybe it didn't register. But internally, it was like, what does it mean to be a Soviet citizen changed? Um, and it used to be about building a future. And now it became just about like the present, more or less. Um, and that changed a lot of perspectives. And it changed a lot of how the society and and like a lot of things were organized and like a lot of things were kind of very subtly renamed um, or like leaderships were reorganized and changed along those lines were much more about preserving the status quo than building that future. Anyway, to sort of to sort of draw this back down to where we started was that's like an ontological shift and it's an ontological breakdown. And I think that like there there's kind of two, there's two kind of rival forces going on. On the one end is this desire for homogenization and legibility, right? Where where and you know I, I talk about this all the time right the, the the Overton window is not actually what you can say in public the Overton window is what you can sell in Walmart, and Walmart wants to be <laughs> able to sell to as many people as possible so homogenization of like culture and taste is very much in in walmart's interest, and of course I'm, I'm using Walmart as a placeholder for whatever organization you like um, so that's that's one side of it right there's this great homogenizing press. And I think that like, especially that was, that was in high gear in like the nineties up until probably 2001. Um, and then there's another force, which is, which we're seeing a lot of right now, which is like this balkanizing, balkanizing kind of, uh, fractalization of culture, right. Where, you know, you're, you're not, you're you're no longer an American, you're no longer like an IBMer or whatever. You're like, Salami sliced all the way down to as many atoms of identity as you can muster. And then you have to create ontology for every group that you kind of have membership in and belong to. Uh, Which, by the way, which, by the way, I have a conspiracy theory about. I think the CIA did that on purpose. Um, But, you know... uh, I, I don't have proof, so that, that's like a very, that's a narrative type of...
0: That's okay, I'm not gonna ask for proof. My, I mean, like my only objection to CIA conspiracy theories is that I just don't believe they're that competent, but... Uh,
1: so here's the thing, right? Like things can get out of hand though, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So in yeah, that sense, I believe, like things can get out of hand. I also like, you know, it's very hard to organize groups of people for long periods of time, but it's very easy to start processes with unintended consequences. Yeah. And so my theory on this and, and like we know we know a lot about w- of wild cultural shit the CIA was involved in like Jackson Pollock is a CIA op. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, that's like known. It's it's documented, not a conspiracy theory. They Correct. like explicitly yeah. funded abstract art to make it the thing the Western world cared about. Um, and obviously that's gotten out of hand. Right. Yeah. Um, so the other process that I'm actually fairly convinced they did on purpose is every successful revolutionary movement has as a core principle, the idea of the united front, right? And that's basically like, yeah, you know, you're anarchists and we're communists and we'll probably murder each other as soon as this is over. But for the time being, we need to get the massive people behind us to get anything done. And so we're gonna boil down our ideas to the simplest possible thing that people can get united behind, right? Mm-hmm. This is like a core premise of every successful revolutionary movement, regardless of left wing, right wing, whatever, right? Yep. um and so how do you how do you go how do you go about destroying that in general like it's really hard to kind of go out there and destroy revolutionary movements in detail right everyone's got its unique conditions you have to kind of learn the local geography blah 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 et cetera, whatever what you'd rather do is kind of like find a general solution to this problem um so instead of getting you know, you know like Getting two different ethnic groups of communists to fight each other and like stop the revolution. What you actually want to do is like prevent a united front from ever forming. And so what do you do? You tell people that you have to be intersectional in your beliefs. You say,
2: yeah,
1: you say you go against the principle of the united front. And what you say is like, actually to support anyone, you need to support everyone's goals and desires at the same time as much as possible and you're only legitimate if you're completely open to all of those things um which you know is it's incredibly destructive but it but works fucking great if you're if you're um if your goal is to prevent united fronts forming so that's that's kind of why why like that's like my narrative story about why the CIA did it cuz it's it's just awfully useful and convenient to, Yeah like, no they they definitely got like they definitely got motive yeah. I guess
0: they probably had an opportunity too. And I mean, it's, you know, they've got funding. So yeah, sure. Why not? Let's, let's run with it.
1: I, I also have another theory, uh, which is somewhat more substantiated by historical documentation. Uh, I think QAnon is like the direct result of KGB efforts going back to at least the 50s.
0: No shit. Okay, tell me more.
1: So um, it's like documented fact that the Soviets, on purpose, planted conspiracy theories. In the United States and like hyped them up uh, and grew them as part of their disinformation efforts. And this was everything from like Roswell to JFK's assassination to like moon landing hoax, all this stuff. Like,
0: this is right t- that. that's amazing.
1: Yeah, this is in the this isn't like the Metroghian archives and other things. I
0: fucking love this. Oh, really?
1: Yeah. Like you, you, you can find out about this, this like disinfo. Um but again, I think it's one of those processes like, you know, okay, so what do you want to do? You want to kind of like sow general mistrust in the government, right? You want to break down unity in your target. Huh. And obviously like the KGB isn't operational anymore. And probably by the 80s, they were, you know, fairly convincingly fucked. Like as soon as they were out of Germany, it became so much harder to do anything. Yeah. Um, but the processes that that started may have, you know, might have reached escape velocity. They might have taken on a life of their own, where like people just ran with it, uh, and like again, QAnon is the apotheosis. QAnon is like the fusing together of 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 the platonic ideal of conspiracy because it, it's an umbrella for everything.
0: It's a cinematic universe.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a whole cinematic universe, and they're they're very integrationist. <laughs> Nothing, as long as it's a conspiracy, like it's allowed, right? Yeah, it can be anything, and that's how you get like. um... Gwyneth Paltrow group, Marina Moms, you know, right there on the front lines <laughs> alongside fucking uh, Turner Diaries, man, you know, like, yeah, that, that's amazing it's, to me. Um, but yeah, in a sense it's a united front. Front. say that again,
0: in a sense, it's a United front.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> that's right. But, but, it, but it's like, it's, it's like the, um, it's the utterly useless one. It's a united front front in the same way that like work work culture in general is a united front. Yeah. Right? It's like whatever this is, you can belong to it, but you know, you're kinda it's brownie in motion. You're thrashing around. You're not actually going in any particular direction.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I actually I actually really support I'm I'm grateful to the KGB for doing that though. I and mean, it just because <laughs> just, like I do not I mean Somebody's going to take that quote out of trusted. context.
1: You have to be careful. Someone is going to cut this podcast down to "I'm grateful for the KGB," and yeah, that's you know what?
0: good. I'm 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 going to put that in the intro. The podcast that is grateful for the KGB done. Um, <laughs> but like no, I I just like I think the United States is better off when people don't trust the U.S. government because the U.S. government is not to be trusted, and.
1: And this you country's know. operated on that principle since day one.
0: Yeah. And even, even still, like, people still trust the government way too fucking much. So, like, you know, thank you, KGB, for helping us be more American. Anyway, sorry. You had a real point.
1: You're you're, no, you're, you're you're right. And I actually think that Americans in general have a um, so surprising – like, Americans Americans are great people. Um, they're a lot more like Slavic people than they think um, in many – many Interesting. Countries. In many, many ways. Um, but Americans are both kind of very hopeful people to the point like, you know, Europeans will say Americans are naive. I don't think they're really naive so much. as just like way more optimistic. Um, but Americans also have this weird tension between like cynicism and anybody's ability to do anything right, while also relying on structures to do things right. It's somehow it's 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 this weird tension that runs through U.S. society, um, at least that I've noticed. Yeah. Better, like you know, it's sort of like and 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 right now, especially with, with the way things are politically here, it's people are like, well, what what team shall we decide is competent rather than well, is anyone at all competent? What are we supposed to be doing? You know.
0: Yeah, I think I think we used to be more hopeful about that sort of thing, or like mm-hmm. more trusting about it. Um, my guess is that a lot of that fell apart in the Vietnam era. And
1: um, I think the 80s, 80s as well. I think the 80s had a lot to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that like a lot of institutions that maybe were doing okay but were not like economically viable anymore, were like mm. taken away and that that caused other part, like it caused a little bit of a domino thing where other parts started to fall over. Um, Yeah, I think about like mental health. I think that like there were facilities, a lot more facilities aimed at like mental health, and a lot of those were taken away. You know, carrot and stick. Like you know, one one was like, oh, they're too expensive, and another was like, well, people are better off getting cared for in their communities. Except like fucking nobody cares for anybody in their communities. Yeah. Um. So you know, I, I think that like people saw decay like that start to spread. Um, also, you know, Vietnam had a lot to do with it, um, but people saw like decay and incompetence start to spread. And right around that time, I think there was that flip from like, oh yeah, you know, like the hardworking bureaucratic technocrat to like DMV lady, right? Yeah. As, as a perception of government. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's 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 like multifaceted. It's difficult.
0: Yeah, yeah. There was that, I guess there was a Friedman idea of government that it really came to the fore. I mean, I think it was also sort of a failure of... Um, all the Great Society stuff, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, like, there, there have been such an effort to, you know, really improve welfare in, you know, U.S. cities and so on. But, like, you know, you look at the crack epidemic in the 80s and, like, all of that seemed like it was just completely useless. So, and I think people gave up on that kind of program.
1: Yeah. I, I, I. Yeah, I think that that's really true. I think that, like, there was a shot... That took and it like you know kind of didn't work for a variety of reasons, which you know contrast that to like the New Deal, which okay, World War II happened to come along as well, but people have in had at that time in mind like oh wait, this worked fucking great, we're all prosperous and better off now, right? Because of yeah. these big government programs. Um, the thing that I always think about, do you know Robert Moses? Um, I should. I've, I I know the name. I can't remember what he did. So Robert Moses is like the original deep state. Um, but he—he he like he's the guy who basically created modern New York City, more or less. Oh, yeah, shit. I have a book about him that I never read. I, look, he's an interesting character. You can probably just skim the Wikipedia page to get the vibe. Um, yeah. But, like, yeah, unelected bureaucrat created an office for himself and basically, like, ran urban planning. Everything had to go through him in New York City. And he would like bulldoze entire neighborhoods when he felt that a freeway should be there right and that just always happened to be poor and black of course right like or or like working class ethnic minorities of various kinds right um and then i think what happened as well and, and part of the sclerosis we see is the swing away from that where people decided well actually this is too high a cost to bear we want people to be able to have some agency for what this giant state apparatus can possibly do to them. So we're going to start putting everything to like a vote and we're going to have like zoning boards where people can come in and block like new construction. And and that kind of swings the pendulum in the other direction where now you can't really get anything done, but it does restrain people from just coming through and bulldozing entire neighborhoods to put a three way through there because they think it might be aesthetic, right? Like, yeah. So it's, it's hard to say it's, it's like the burden of, Coordination problems, man, they're fucking everywhere and they're hard. Yeah. You we know, solve them. Yeah, so like
0: um so like yeah, so so looping way back, I mean like I'm totally fine with these digressions, but I do want to hear what you think. I mean, like, just just given the state of things now and the way that you know, so so I guess my questions are, like, one, do you think that our problem right now is primarily epistemic or ontological? In in the United States specifically, I guess. And then two, like what, what the hell should we do about it, if
1: anything? Right. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you the weak answer to the first one, like the really boring bullshit, obvious answer, which is it's both. Um, yeah. and I think that the reason it's both is because as we discussed our, earlier, ontology almost defines what it is possible to think about. So ontology yeah. almost defines epistemology in a way, right? If you're not aware yeah. of the choices that you have, you'll never think about or make those choices or get information about them. Um, So what that means in the United States is like, if nobody knows what it means to be an American, uh, and some people like actively don't want to be American, um, then like, how are you going to make think how are you going to think and make choices about what's going on in America? Right. It's 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 it's. Yeah, I think it's both. It's ontological and epistemological. And it gets harder to sort of construct an ontology when it's hard to know anything as well. Right. Yeah. if if you don't know what's true, how are you going to define anything? And if you don't know what to define, how are you going to figure out like where to even look in the first place? It's kind of both. You have to you have to sort of bootstrap it. Um there are efforts really, underway. Sorry, go ahead.
0: I'm really getting more I and mean, like as time has passed, I'm I'm becoming more sympathetic to Confucius in a really limited sense, right? In the sort of a rectification of names way, like you know, it's like Get a fucking ontology together, man.
1: Yeah. Um, I think the thing, the immediate problem you have there, though, is you have to convince people that you have the right ontology. Yeah. Right? Like, that's your immediate next problem. It's great for you. Like, it's great for you and me. We can think whatever we want about the world. But if we're going to coordinate and, and, like, do things, then we have to convince other people. And that's where everything starts to fall down immediately. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Like, what do we do about it? I think that you have to have, I think the way out is like, just demonstrate competence. I think that competence beats everything else. And this is, this is what I don't understand, right? Again, core revolutionary principle. If there's something that a government is not doing for ordinary people, you go in there and you do it, right? Um, And there's so many opportunities for that in the United States right now. It, it like amazed me that there wasn't some like, I don't know. And, and I mean, they were there just not, not like making a lot of noise about it and not, um, and not actually like getting into the national story about it. But like, if I was a, if I was like an anarchist or or anything like that, I would have been in Flint, Michigan, like day one with like water trucks. Right. Yeah. To, to fucking show up, you know, and you see this, like bikey gangs do this all the time. Right. Hell's Angels toy ride, like that's, you know, that's like legitimizing them as a, as, a, as a thing that that is allowed to exist because the community at least supports them in some way, right? Um, and that's not happening, but that's an easy demonstration of competence. So like demonstrating competence is step one. And I think the other thing is, is it gets harder to demonstrate competence when the structures you have to operate in um, prevent you from doing that. So, you know, like regulation, and I'm actually not as anti-regulation as a lot of people are, because I'm, as an engineer, I'm pretty aware of how many of those regulations are written in blood. Yeah. Um, like, there's a reason things are the way they are, guys, uh, a lot of the time. Um, it's like, oh, why don't we have supersonic transportation? Well, because they, like, people got fucking sick of sonic booms. Um, they literally made people physically ill when they, when they tested these above cities, so they stopped doing that. It's not because we forgot how to build fast airplanes, right? Um, and you know, hopefully, hopefully, one of the like supersonic aircraft companies works out, and they they don't actually give people nausea and headaches. Um, but we'll see. But demonstrated- markets are a
0: solution. Markets solve this. Anyways, no, no, sorry. Markets, Mark.
1: markets don't solve this. Crime solves this. I think more billionaires should just be like very competent criminals in the sense that they ignore regulatory bodies but still do the right thing.
0: Are you suggesting that the solution to America's problems is Batman?
1: I, well, not not exactly. Uh, so, first of all, so here here's here's my like complete plan here, right? First of all, America has a very long history of valorizing its criminals. Yeah, very long history. Um, Bonnie and Clyde, Al Capone, like you know, even the Unabomber has fans, right? Um,
0: Shout out to Uncle Ted. Yeah.
1: Yeah, like you know, he, every, criminals in America are seen as like and gangsters and all kinds of people, right? They're lionized and they're lionized because they have to operate outside of the systems that everybody else lives under, which means they're really testing themselves directly against the world in, in, in ways that um, most people never will. And in many ways, like, you know, despite the fact that they're fucking cruel and destroy lives, that ability to test yourself and come out on top is, is what people admire ultimately, right? So, so step one, like Americans admire crime. Um, Two, displaying competence is the way to convince people to like you know rally around an ontology and epistemics. So that like option three here is like do crime in in the service of good, right? Like you know, Mark Mark Andreessen, I know you're listening. You have enough money. To like just build housing, ignore the zoning board, and then pay the fines. Like you can do this. I know that you can. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of the approach that I would take. I wouldn't take the Batman approach because I think going out into the streets and beating people up doesn't really help people that much. But
0: okay, how about uh, how about Travis Kalanick?
1: Travis Kalanick um, with yeah, like I mean, we're-
0: yeah, I mean, like, he just kind of, like, started maybe breaking laws and then let people sue him and, and mostly won, right? But it was kind of a fanatic to complete at that yeah.
1: point. Yeah, I mean, so he, he he went barbarian mode. Um, I think that, you know, again, like, I think the problem is, is Uber U- Uber's not easy, but it definitely, like, created something that people value, even if they felt weird about it, right? Yeah. Like, uh, people... This is, again, tying back to earlier discussions about technology. People feel icky feeling good about technology right now. They want it to kind of not exist. Like, they want the benefit, but they never want to think about how the sausage gets made, right? But anyway, yeah, yeah like, like a, like a Kalanick move, where you like kind of just like, yeah, we'll, we'll get to the regulators when they get to us, but we're moving so much faster. We're going to use that to our advantage. Um, you could probably do things like that. But you don't have – what I think is like – you you said like markets solve everything. I think a lot of these things are not profitable to solve. But here's the thing: historically, elites haven't cared about profitability. They've cared about legacy. They've cared about responsibility. So you know that you know that book that everyone um, in like quote unquote techie circles has somewhere on their bookshelf called "Revolt of the Public" by uh, Martin Guri. i and- slightly embarrassed that I haven't read this but I haven't I haven't like nobody's actually read it I think in these circles um it's you know it's it's actually a really interesting book um I I don't think most of these people have read it the point that I'm trying to make is the title of that book and its entire premise is actually a reaction to an earlier thing called revolt of the elites and the revolt of the elites is this thing that happened also I think around the 80s maybe a little bit earlier where like Elites in the West stepped away from their historical, I don't want to say duties or obligations, but like their historical role. Yeah, yeah, it was an abdication. I think that's right. I think there was an abdication and I think that like we can fix a lot by people actually asserting that and saying, you know what? Fuck it. I am going to make things better. I know it's unprofitable, but like, you know, I've got enough money. I'm going to be dead anyway. Um, pharaohs built pyramids nice. Carnegie built libraries you know what are you going to be remembered for right um, what if you know I, I wonder how much of that was
0: um, there was okay so did you read bonfire of the vanities
1: I, I haven't uh, I kind okay. of know the premise but I haven't read yeah. it
0: okay so, so like there's this um, I mean you know he's uh, Sherman something or other Sherman McCoy maybe I don't know total blue blood in New York you know he's trading bonds in the 80s yeah and, um, you know, he's, he's living irresponsibly. He's got a mistress, so he's kind of a dick. I can't remember He does drugs. Probably. It doesn't matter. Um, what, one of the things that really struck me about that book was,
1: I have, I have a funny story about that book that I'll tell you, I'll tell you in a little while. Anyway, I want book, yeah. so, so he's like thinking about his dad a lot. He, he's often thinking about his
0: dad and his dad also, you know, same thing, right? Like ran a law firm. You know, had 50 people working under him. And, you know, Sherman McCoy is much richer than his father could have ever dreamed of being. Mm-hmm. But, like, he's he not living up to what his father was. Right. And, like at, at one point, he's thinking, like, would his father have had an affair? And he's like, no, I don't think he would have. Right. And, and there's this, like, um, kind of mobility that he's not living up to. And I, I sort of wonder if there's an extent to which what happened was, like, all the boomers came out And like they just never made the transition from like whatever they were in the sixties, right? They they revolted and maybe in the eighties they ended up getting rich, but they never became patricians. Like they never like they were too cool for it or or something, right? Like they got older but they didn't they didn't actually take over the institutions. And so then, you know, the 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 generation before them started dying out and like nobody was actually there to take the wheel so it wasn't like people who were there abdicating it was like the kids not making that transition and stepping up
1: yeah yeah i i I think i have that perspective my funny story about bonfire of the vanities is i had a one night stand with a girl and then we were in bed together the next morning and i and she told me that like she was reading it, and I accidentally spoiled the plot for her because I had read the like summary. Oh no! <laughs> Two days. Oh before. no! Well, I mean, okay,
0: it's
1: I. I mean, you I can't, feel, it's it's what like a sixty year old book. You can't really spoil it that hard.
0: It's I mean it's like forty years old, but yeah. I mean it's also like the you know like the details of the plot are not the important thing. You know, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. how everything comes together. So I wouldn't feel that bad
1: about it. I, I mean, I didn't feel that bad about it. It's just you reminded me of that now for some reason. Um, Yeah. look I, i think but here's the other part right like people were also admired for doing that in the past and they received admiration in like a palpable way and because we've swung away on like for good reasons away from like the robert robert moses model of doing things um receiving that admiration is itself much more difficult now like this is this is part of a broader public reaction to you know whatever it is that the New York Times thinks technology is um, because people see it as like an illegitimate mechanism to becoming wealthy um and wealth has become the object in itself as opposed to a byproduct or a yeah. uh and and like that 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 puts like Frankly, the optimism of the entire culture in danger, and if the optimi- if the optimism in the culture goes out completely, we are in very desperate trouble. Um, like I, I talk a lot about this and I think about it a lot as well. W- what happens and what is happening right now is this big vacuum is getting generated. Um, when people like don't have the ontology, when people don't know who they are uh, or what they're supposed to be doing, they will they want to know and they want somebody to come and tell them. And the worst kind of fucking people that exist are already and waiting to do that. Um they're like we like it's imperative that we get ahead of that somehow. Cuz like absolute like the biggest fucking hydric himmler psychopaths in the world are waiting for that opportunity. They're waiting, like I promise you that right now somebody out there is is planning to fill this void um it's very, very very, very dangerous
0: oh sure, I mean like, yeah, I mean, it's you know, you sort of see it now where it's like I don't know, i mean I and again, not to be you know, particularly inflammatory, but like... Being inflammatory is your entire deal. Come on. Well, okay, but I'm, I'm trying to be polite and... That's and, well, okay. You know, you're,
1: you're, you're polite enough to me. It's it's fine. Let's be inflammatory. Let's go. What's okay, yeah. Well, I mean, like, one, one thing that's been really
0: disappointing to me is, you know, in, in the context of, you know, the last few years, like, the number of people on the right in the U.S. who have responded to, you know, various people in the United States and yeah. the U S government by like saying, actually, you know, what's great is like the Chinese communist party, you yeah. know? Yeah. And it, it or like that sort of thing. Or like, yeah, actually like Putin, you know, kicks ass. And it's, it's like, okay.
1: Yeah. I've I mean, seeing this true. And I've, I'm, I'm keeping a list of names.
0: Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's really disappointing. First of all, because I, I think like just empirically they're, they're, very wrong about you know the effectiveness of of these various you know modes of governance
1: and uh, fucking they don't work man <laughs> they fucking suck if they did they'd be our government like anyway
0: yeah but but even even apart from that i mean just like looking to those modes of government and and seeing hope you know or like a vision for what could be i mean it feels like um sort of what you're talking about right like they kind of, kind of this like, okay, here are these people who I think are, like, if you're seeing clearly, like, these are not good people, you no. know, and sure. and and like going and looking at them and like, you know, standing for that sort of thing, it's, it's, I mean, it's disappointing to me. Yeah, it's is all really. And yeah, I don't it, think this
1: is, it speaks to a narrowness of thinking, and either a cynicism or a pessimism that doesn't serve you, like. I kind of have this little mental model that I always speak to myself, which is when I'm unsure of something, I'll be like, well, if I had an enemy, what would they like me to believe about this? And then I just pick the opposite. Like regardless of whether I know it's true or not, I'll be like, well, if I can't decide what would be like the the worst thing for me to believe. Right. Uh huh. And so one of these things I think is like believing so little in your countrymen that you think you need fucking, you know, and again, like Vladimir Putin is not what, the American right thinks he is, but that's a whole different point. Um, But the fact that you think you need your countrymen to be governed by this system because you believe in them so little is, is exactly what your enemy would want you to believe about them. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, fucking, yeah. Everyone in your country is incompetent. You know, you need a strongman dictator to come in there. Like, fucking, of course, of course, your enemy would love for you to believe that. Because as we've established, it's an ineffectual system of government. Um, Yeah, like, it's, it's, I'm for optimism, I would like for Americans to recover their optimism about their country. Um, I think it will take an extreme display of competence. I think it's going to take a display of competence that requires ordinary people to feel a material improvement in their existence. I think that's very, very important, right? Yeah, yeah. And for the last, you know, and this is, I think, another reason why people like why the mainstream thinks tech is icky or doesn't like it anymore is because a lot of the improvements that we've seen have been mostly improvements of convenience, while other like while other material factors in their lives have like materially obviously deteriorated. Right. Yeah. Like Amazon Prime is great, but if I don't feel safe, my kids playing outside, like I don't really care about convenience. Yeah. So we need we need like these obvious, direct, just, and not necessarily profitable displays of extreme competence. Um, Like you know, tying back, then uh, kind of, I I had to I had to dig myself out of a very deep, depressed, cynical hole about technology. Um, It it took a long time, um, where I was just like fucking. Anyone, I just basically went like head to head against anybody who professed any sort of optimism about like building technology companies or what technology could really do for people. And I really had to dig myself out of that. It took a lot of effort, but I kind of see where people are coming from as well. When you're in San Francisco and you're talking about changing the world, but you can't stop the streets in your own town from like having human feces on them regularly. And by the way, the problem is not nearly as bad as people say it is like simply do not go like don't be anywhere east of Van Ness or south of Market and the city is beautiful. Um, but when you, when you like have these very obvious problems and you're claiming you're going to change the world, why should anyone believe you? Why should anyone be anything but cynical about you? Um, yeah. and so, you know, that's, that's kind of what I think needs to happen. That's, that's how we need to like assemble people and, and, and get them believing in the future and actually thinking, well, you know what, our system of government, it's not perfect, but you know, if we get the right people into the right places, it starts to kind of work. Um, and really lean again, like, I honestly, I think that America could use a shot in the arm from the old like valorizing outlaws outlook like you know yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna build a fucking housing development and challenge the zoning board to tear it down like yeah i challenge you to kick out a thousand working class families from this building i just put up let's let's fucking go let's let's make that the news you know
0: yeah okay so one one thing that i've been thinking about is we been talking about this right like a display of competence. like we've got and like why it's not coming necessarily from tech i mean like it, it feels like right now there are a couple of major vistas in technology that are, are probably going to have a dramatic effect on society and i see some of it happening in biology i see some of it happening in ml and i mean i guess i see some of it happening in space you know mm-hmm. like and i i mean like okay so for biology. I mean, it seems like there are going to be a lot of very big things happening in the near future, but maybe they don't have that same kind of like kit that things that in in the past were really dramatic influences on people's lives, right? I mean, like you look at the way that people's lives changed in the 20s, completely different. Exactly.
1: Exactly. That's kind of what I'm talking about. But there is an element of marketing here that we could leverage, right? It's 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 like, like you said, like great advances are coming, but they might be invisible. So let's like market the shit out of them yeah, um, and make it really clear to people that like, no, it's actually possible to improve the way that we're living. It's impo- It's possible to make things better for you and your family, not just in the abstract. Like, you know, okay. Like going to Mars is great if you're the kind of person who cares about going to Mars, but most people don't give a shit except in the abstract. It's a fictional thing. Right, as far it as it would everything. be amazing, though. You yeah, it would be super cool like when
0: people when people landed on the moon in sixty nine. I mean, like, I think people lost their shit, and for good oh, yeah. reason.
1: Oh yeah, I, 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 there's, there's a company that I want to build that is like going to be also a clear demonstration of something like that. But that's, that's for the, that's for the future. I'm not doing that right away. Um, in the meantime, I just think that people need to, need to see that, need to see these like, they, they need to see their elite stepping up. Um, and doing something other than accumulating yet more capital, basically. Yeah, yeah. There's a few of those projects underway. Um, I don't know what effect, if any, they'll have. Um, I think a lot of them get ideologically captured really early as well, because they have this need to run their own narrative. They really wanna be their own thing Um, and like have their own justification and, and have this like very exit kind of mentality. Where I yeah. think, you know, a lot of the time you'd be better served just by fucking, you know, whatever, I'm going to open my own schools and hire my own teachers and the board of education can suck my dick. Like, it's it's, it's not it's not that expensive to, to, to school children correctly or well. Um, and, you know, making it very clear that, yeah, this is open to all and I'm funding it and then the board of education can tell me to shut it down, but good luck to them because I'm going to fight them with as many lawyers as I can hire um, is going to be like admired, I think. It's going to be much yeah. more admired than building, you know, buildings and, and, and monuments. We can get to that part later when the rest of society is kind of more functional.
0: Yeah, I, that, that's a really good point, actually. when you talk about schooling, I mean, I think, you know, for the longest time, Americans really like the public schools, but I think that's dead at this point. Oh, it's completely dead and
1: buried, man. It's over. And, I, mean, I, know, I, mean, like, I, I worked with the school system in this country um, a long time ago, back in 2013, uh-huh. and like what i learned and so so here's the thing right a lot of people really blame teachers for the state of the public school system um i've been on the ground and you know the, I, I blame again, the kids sorry
0: i blame the kids
1: i don't blame oh, the kids i blame no, the I, parents. I blame the parents i blame the parents um i blame the parents i blame the fucking pta and i blame the boards of education a lot of people at least you know again when i was on the ground and trying to get things moving back in 2013 and 14 um teachers like are most of the time like really genuinely good people and they really want they want to teach because they're they want to educate kids like they care about that. Um, yeah. I don't know, I don't know if that's still true like I hear weird shit I don't know what to believe but back then at least most teachers were hard people who wanted to work hard had their heart set on like helping their kids and they really saw them as like res- themselves as responsible for the outcomes of these kids for the most part. Like there's going to be shit birds in any organization, but for most of the teachers that I ever spoke to were like that. Yeah. Um, and what I found out was like, they're burdened with all of this other bullshit that simply has nothing to do with teaching, but which is imposed on them by administrators and, and, and PTAs like yeah. fucking the reporting requirements on like a school teacher in the United States are absurd. Um, and they're also forced to run these schools like fucking prisons because the PTA basically tells them to, or the board of education sets some fucking guideline because it's a, it's a political stepping stone into other parts of us politics. Um, so people come in they have, they're there for like two years, they make random changes. So they said they can do something and move on with their political career. And the teachers are the ones who have to actually implement all these bullshit policies. Um, so I don't think, there's, you know, I don't think we should blame the teachers. I think that like we should just create an effective teaching environment and then hire good people.
0: There's a, there's an essay by a guy who um, probably is not somebody who you're allowed to read, but he makes an argument um, in one of his essays that one of the things that happened in the 60s, and I think mostly the 60s, was uh, deprofessionalization of teachers in the United States. And by deprofessionalization, I mean, I mean or he meant that before this, this change, um, teachers actually had quite a lot of autonomy in the way that they taught. And so they, you know, and they were able to say punish students um, sort of as they saw fit, which of course, you know, was abused very frequently. Yep. But it also gave them control
1: over their classrooms in a way that, after that point, was just not possible for them. Yep. And that's, that's the Robert Moses thing again. And a lot of this stuff happened in exactly the '60s for that reason. Mm, yeah. Same thing. Same Interesting. thing. Interesting. Same thing. It's exactly the same thing. Like giving people power to do good also gives them the power to like abuse your children. Right. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, we haven't figured it out. Um, but like, to my opinion, there's like enough outrage right now for somebody to just go in and do it. Um, and then make an enormous, enormous amount of noise about they're trying to shut me down, even though I'm building the school to fucking educate people. um, Yeah, and you know, parents. What are they they going to do? They're going to send the cops to your marina mansion to arrest you for building a school? Who's going to do that? Nobody's going to do that.
0: I hope you're right.
1: I mean, they might. They might, but think of the fucking headlines, though.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know what? Uh, fuck it. Hey, if if you're listening and you're rich, and you want to try this, do it. I
1: I totally encourage you, and I'm not going to jail. So by all means, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean that, that's right. Me and me and Igan are not going to jail um, over this, but we, you we encourage <laughs> okay, but, cool. but you. Okay, cool. But you guys can afford it, right? So you know it's fine.
0: Yeah, just keep it keep the litigation going for years. They'll send you to
1: um, nice. They'll send you to rich people jail.
0: I know, right? And like probably like jail regular jail. Probably. Yeah. And like, if this fails, like maybe society collapses anyway, and jail is the safest place to be. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. Maybe you
1: want to be in the jail. Maybe this is like an escape from New York type of scenario. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah
1: right.
0: Anyway. Hey, so, so we've been going for almost two hours. Um, yeah. Is, is there anything else you want to cover before we, uh, before we wrap up?
1: No, look, I, I think this has been great. Um, I think what, what's been really cool with this one is I think we got a lot of like the common themes of my thinking out through a lot of different themes, which, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, I don't know. I, I hope that people call me an idiot on Twitter. Um, I think that'll be really funny.
0: Yeah. We can arrange for that.
1: Yeah. No, it's, it's okay. You can just post this and, and that happens organically. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if you remember. Remember a long time ago, I did that like joke thread about how Silicon Valley was similar to the Soviet Union. I
0: think I do. Yeah.
1: yeah a long time ago. I think that's actually kind of like my breakout moment and how I got into the post rat sphere by accident. Um. There are people to this day who call me retarded on Imgur because people repost like that thread and the images from it on that website. And like to this day, people call me retarded because of that. Um that's, so, that's, so like I said, it happens organically.
0: That's a legitimate accomplishment. Like I thought of that, man. <laughs> like whenever people are reposting my threads years down the line and getting mad about it, like massive dub.
1: Yeah, like uh, sometimes I'll, I'll get like 50 60 extra followers in a day and then I'll I'll just like do a search and I'll be like, "Oh, it's it's fucking it's gone to the top again." <laughs> um, or or you know, sometimes sometimes a different thing happens, like I absolutely don't follow when anything I write or say ends up on, you know, like Reddit or or Hacker News or whatever, but occasionally I'll see like a traffic spike and then again, I'll just see people calling me retarded. Um, by the way, Again, look. Again, I, I think overall places like Slate Star Codex and Hacker News and stuff are pretty good. But I it amazes me how often people on those websites fail to capture any of the substance of what me or anyone else is saying, and get bogged down in like absolute minutia where they've obviously missed the point. But this is the thing that they really want to talk about. Like this, this is such a common pattern. Um. In, in, in like, I, I think it's just internet wide, but it, it happens a lot.
0: Oh yeah, totally. I and mean, it's like, kind of like dreadjacking or like, you know, I have a question. It's really more of a comment or whatever, you know, like people yeah. get on their, sh- their their shit and just want to make everything about that. And you know what? That's <laughs> fine. I, I understand the
1: impulse. All right. um, one, one last thing, one last thing. Yeah. So are you, are you familiar with, uh, so, you know, you've been talking about machine learning Are you familiar with a guy named Schmidt Schmidhuber?
0: No. And I'm sure that I'm not familiar because I would have remembered
1: that name. Go yeah, on. I mean, he, he's, you know, he's kind of a famous dude in the community. And there, there's actually a phrase um, to be Schmidt Hubert at a conference, oh, which no. means that he's in the audience for your presentation, and he will raise his hand and explain to you exactly that you should have cited him in your bibliography, because he invented it 10 years ago. And <laughs> a, there is a fantastic uh, video somewhere, which I'll find um, of this happening in real time and like people like getting up and starting to scatter when they realize (laughs) it's pretty amazing i mean look he's actually a really interesting guy he did great stuff um i actually like his work in logic a lot better than i liked any of his work in machine learning but um yeah like to be schmidt hubert is an active thing that you can be in machine learning and maybe we need to adopt like a a similar phrase over in over in shit poster land amazing yeah schmidt hubert did this
0: yeah, just, just the reverse, like, like second-hand Schmitt-Hubering, right? Yeah. Like, like doing it on behalf. Yeah. All uh, right. All right, cool. Hey, this thank was you hella- so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, this was hella fun. Um, Looking forward to what this sounds like in real life. Um. Yeah.
0: Yeah, honestly, I never listen to my own podcasts. I just Smart. I can't do it. Yeah, my but, wife does, though, so I get to hear about it later.
1: Oh, so, well, let me know what she thinks. You know what? I will. Hey, all uh, right.
0: if you're listening, like... You should definitely add Anton. All right, cool. Hey, <laughs> okay. uh, this is uh, Anton. Uh, you're. Um, oh shit! I, I didn't even introduce you. Very rude. Um, That's fine. Yeah, so You this have is... my
1: name on the thing, right? So it's. Yeah, it's, I'll, like, I'll have your
0: name on the thing, and I'll tag you. So yeah. Anyway, hey man, it's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Awesome. Yeah, fun to come on, and you have a great rest of your weekend. I'm gonna go hang out in the park because it's warm. Excellent. Take care. See ya.